0: Welcome to Face Connecticut, an in-depth look at today's issues. Good morning and welcome to another edition of Face Connecticut on WTIC News Talk 1080, 96.5 TIC FM and Light 100.5 WRCH. Aaron Kupek with you this Sunday morning. Happy New Year. And we are pleased to be joined by Alan Zygmunt. He is Public Fire and Life Safety Coordinator with the Department of Emergency Services and Public Protection and the Connecticut Fire Academy.
1: Good morning to you, sir. Good morning. Thanks for having us.
0: Unfortunately, there has been a string of fatal fires in Connecticut, also a number of injuries resulting from residential fires, so we thought it would be a good idea to have you on and talk about some fire safety. First of all, what steps can homeowners and renters take to prevent residential fires?
1: What people have to understand is the wintertime, especially between December and February, is the worst time for house fires anywhere in the country. And one of the major contributing factors is heating systems. So the the key factors with any heating systems is what we always explain to people, that they need to make sure that those systems are maintained regularly. Um, at least annually, you should have a, a service contractor come in and check the whatever heat, type of heating system you have in your home. To make sure it's operating properly. Let's go through the main
0: types of heating systems people might have, starting with natural gas. I mean, certainly they they put a smell into natural gas to to let you know there might be a leak, right?
1: That's correct. That's the main reason why why the uh, the odor there's an odorant that's actually added because natural gas by itself does not have an odor. So they do that specifically so homeowners can tell what that there may be a gas leak. So that's a critical thing. Obviously, whenever if you ever suspect that you smell gas, we uh, recommend that you completely evacuate the building and call 911. The fire department will come out and uh, be able to investigate and determine if there is an, indeed a, a leak there.
0: When there is a fire related to a natural gas heating
1: system, are there certain trouble spots that typically cause the fire? Uh, again most most every heating system whether it's natural gas or oil the typical fuel kind of uh, heating systems that that people have in their homes the the biggest single issue that causes those are is lack of maintenance and they just haven't been you know checked on a regular basis and those things it could do a couple of things for the homeowner one it costs you more money because the the system is not operating as efficiently So that's always a a selling point to to the average homeowner. But in addition to that, you want to make sure that it's operating properly because it can produce carbon monoxide and put that into the home or, of course, cause a fire. So moving on to oil heat. Oil isn't quite
0: as combustible, I'm guessing, compared to natural gas, but there are still issues and you're still burning it.
1: Yes, absolutely. There's still an open flame in either of those devices inside the actual heating chamber. So that's something that you have to be aware of. And one of the, by having that, it's, that leads me to another point with both types of systems is oftentimes, especially after the holidays, we often end up with a bunch of storage uh, whether it's packaging from Christmas or whether it's just newspapers or whatever storage we normally have, you want to make sure you don't store that anywhere near the heating system. Because, again, those heating systems, because there is open flame inside, they do get warm, and storage next to or adjacent to heating systems, even hot water heaters, can cause fires in by heating up those items. So we want to make sure we keep at least three feet away from anything that has an open flame in it. And not store any items there. Same goes for stoves and fireplaces. Absolutely, yes. Uh, Same, same exact thing. The stove, the three-foot area around a stove is again uh, something we often talk about during the holiday season. You have more and more people in your home, and you have a lot of people in the kitchen congregating and uh, that area around the stove is something that should be kept clear especially for children
0: most of these systems are connected to some sort of output like a chimney mm-hmm. what can you tell us about the need to keep that clean
1: yeah the the key is that that's part of the maintenance process uh, most of the oil and natural gas uh, units they don't create too much of a buildup inside a chimney but Chimneys especially are susceptible if you use wood or wood stove or pellet stoves or anything like that for heating because as you burn wood, it creates what's known as creosote and it builds up inside the chimney and that's actually combustible. And as time goes on, it builds up more and more and it's continually getting heated and can potentially lead to a fire inside the chimney and then lead to a fire inside the house.
0: They used to sell those logs that you could burn and they they claimed they would clean your chimney, but that doesn't replace actually getting a sweep and and cleaning no, absolutely it from the
1: inside. not. It 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 can help to dry out some of the creosote and help a little bit with the problem, but it's never Never something like um, that a chimney sweep can actually remove all of that. And in addition to that, it's not just the fact of removing the creosote, but it's also when you have it inspected, they're checking for potential cracks or any deformity inside the chimney that could lead for the, all that heat that you're, you, that goes up the chimney could just go right out into the attic or into other areas of the home and cause fire. So that's uh, that's another key part of any chimney inspection. With a, a fireplace or a stove, how should ashes be properly disposed of? Well, the key with ashes is they retain their heat for such a long time, uh, and uh, the, especially so when you shovel out, you know, ashes and coals from the fireplace. We we suggest people put them in a covered metal container, keep them outside the home, and keep them at least ten feet away from the building itself. Very very oftentimes we see this happen over and over again. People take them out of the the uh, fireplace, they toss them in a paper or a plastic bag. And they set them outside because they don't want to go out in the cold or whatever. And they set them on the deck or whatever. And next thing you know, you have a huge fire roaring in the back of the home. So the key is is a metal covered container and keep them well away from the home. Because they're going to ma- maintain their heat for several days. They can potentially maintain their heat that long and lead to a fire You know, well after the fact.
0: We often hear of fires being caused by space heaters. Is it the space heaters themselves that are
1: unsafe or the way they're being used? Uh, Both. (laughs) Uh, The number one thing with the use of a space heater is combustibles being kept too close. So again, um, one of the common things is we have outlets on the outside of our home, and also on the outside of our home is windows and, and curtains. So if you put a space heater there, uh, curtains often are close by and that's again you want to keep anything combustible three feet away from any heat source including a space heater. The second issue with space heaters is people plug them in to outlets that have a number of items plugged into them. The key is is a space heater draws so much power that you don't want to have it in an outlet that has more than one by just it should be plugged in an outlet just by itself. That way you are limiting the potential of drawing too much current through that outlet and potentially causing an electrical fire.
0: Another thing I've heard people often in dire straits do is, is use a cooking oven for a heat source. That should never occur,
1: correct? No, absolutely not. As as times get hard and people have issues with you know being able to afford heating in their homes, they could lead to using other sources. And the, the oven is a common thing. Um, it's incredibly dangerous. I went to a very severe house fire many years ago when I was working in the town of Southington and it was caused by um, a family that was attempting to heat the home with their their oven and it burned down a two-story building. It was really it was fortunate that we had no injuries, but it was, again, caused from something that really isn't isn't necessary to do. Um, If people are having issues with that, they should look into some potential sources that are out there to help them with paying for heat bills in the winter time.
0: Talk to your utility company, contact operation fuel, contact Yes, all of those things. your renewal team maybe things like
1: that. Yeah, things like that that are available to those homeowners that are having difficulties during the winter time.
0: Moving on to other potential sources of fire, you should use extension cords sparingly, correct?
1: Yes, absolutely. Yes. People oftentimes use use an extension cord and they will keep it there for a very long period of time. They plug it in and they got to. Items operating, whether it's a, a freezer or a refrigerator or something like that, that should never be used. It's it in the fire protection circles. It's known as temporary wiring, and it really is should be used only temporarily. So it's not something that you leave plugged in all the time. Another thing, it can be um, suspect to damage over time. Um, they could potentially get walked on, and uh, those those. Um, cords could generally start wearing and tearing, leading to a short circuit, and then could lead to another fire cause.
0: Now, you can keep your heating system in great shape. You can avoid extension cords, but accidents happen, and there may still be a fire. Yes.
1: How can you prepare in advance? The key with that is being prepared, just as you said. The key is have a plan. One of the things that we often talk about in fire safety talks is developing an escape plan for the home. And that's includes everyone that lives there, get them um, all together and and talk about each room of the home. You should understand that there should be two ways out of every room because one room, one way may be blocked by smoke or fire. And uh, so the key is being able to use a secondary escape means if you can. The key also is uh, once you do escape the home, you have to have an, a meeting place outside. So everyone needs to, in the family needs to be aware of that because oftentimes you'll lead to people trying to get out of the building as quickly as possible. And they lead to um, they, they come out of the building in all different places. They should all meet together so that we could be sure, especially as firefighters arrive, they can all be in one place and they can take accountability for everyone that was inside the building. And then they can tell us. The key is is if if we pull up as in front of a a building fire and everyone is safely outside, it changes what we typically do as far as tactics. So it really – it's very helpful for us to understand that going in. And there's been multiple cases of firefighters and other people getting injured because not everyone was accounted for and they thought people were still inside the building. You are listening to FACE
0: Connecticut. We are talking to Alan Zygmunt, Public Fire and Life Safety Coordinator with the Department of Emergency Services and Public Protection and the Connecticut Fire Academy. What are the current recommendations when it comes to number and placement of smoke detectors, CO detectors, and fire extinguishers in a home?
1: Well, carbon monoxide detectors, you should have at least one. And uh, we typically point at getting one in the – between – Where the heat sources are, so those are the things that are creating carbon monoxide. Anything that has a flame can create carbon monoxide. And heating sources are the common issues in homes. Heating sources and garages. So you should keep that carbon monoxide detector between where that source of carbon monoxide could start and where people sleep. Because the biggest issue is when you're sleeping, carbon monoxide is odorless and colorless. And it can affect you in sleeping by not – you're not going to wake up. You just have a tendency of sleeping deeper and deeper. So what happens is that carbon monoxide detector will alert you and uh, give you chance to escape. And smoke detectors? Smoke detectors, again, uh, we recommend, as always, one on every level of the home. But <clears> – <throat> excuse me. Even more important nowadays is we are um, – advocating smoke detectors, one in every sleeping area, one in every single bedroom. So there should be one in on every level as well as one in every bedroom. And those ones that are on each level should be outside of the sleeping area. So usually in a hallway or something like that. So again, you're protecting and you're notifying everyone. And the key with a smoke detector is that it simply notifies you. You still have to take an action when it does go off. So the key is understanding that once it does go off, you have to activate your evacuation plan and get everyone outside the building.
0: What sort of maintenance should people be performing on smoke detectors?
1: Smoke detectors, um, they're generally maintenance-free. What we tell everyone with a smoke or a carbon monoxide detector is test them once a month. There's a test button on there. Hold it in for a second or two. It should go off. And just to let you know that the battery is good and working because they do chirp when the batteries start to get low, but sometimes we're not always home to hear it, and you just want to make sure that it's there protecting you. Uh, the other thing with a smoke detector is we tell people on once and, you know, once every so often, maybe every three, four months, run a vacuum over it because spiders or dust or dust mites or whatever could live inside those those closed-in spaces, and potentially lead to false alarms, those alarms going off more and more. So by vacuuming them out, you keep that those items out of there and uh, leads to the, uh, the detector activating more quickly. Now, should I have a fire extinguisher in my house too? Ideally, yes. Uh, the key with a fire extinguisher is make sure you know where it is and that you can get at it in the case of an emergency. Oftentimes we find them and they're stuffed under a sink behind everything that we use weekly to clean the house or whatever. And so if there's a fire and people are trying to rummage around, trying to find where this is, it should be in an, in an accessible location, ideally close to an exit of the room. Again, most people put extinguishers in the kitchen, which is a, a good idea because that's where common house, home fires happen. Um, put the detector in an accessible location near the exit of the kitchen. So if you can't get the fire out, you can immediately exit. And even in a case of if you're going to use an extinguisher, the key is always make sure everyone in the building knows that there is a potential fire. Even if you're going to attempt to fight it, um, make sure that everyone else is evacuating. And you can attempt it. And if you have any doubts at all, what we always tell people is don't even try. Just get everyone outside the building, call 911, and call the fire department, and they'll come in. Because you can really make a difference if you get that notification
0: that you have to respond to a fire. I'm talking EMS, firefighters, if mm-hmm. you you are notified immediately when it breaks out and not five minutes later as someone tries to fight it on their own.
1: Yeah, time gets compressed very quickly. And if you're attempting to fight the fire, and we've seen this in in a number of different situations, people attempt to fight the fire, whether it's in a business or whether it's in a home. And they are attempting to do that, and it leads to a longer delay in notifying the fire department.
0: You mentioned businesses. A lot of businesses have sprinklers, and there has been a, a push fairly recently to mm-hmm. install sprinklers in dwellings as well.
1: Yeah, they, um, one of the, uh, the newer uh, building safety codes that's been written, it's not in, in Connecticut yet, but it is in other places in the country, um, where all new construction residential buildings have fire sprinklers installed. It's, the key with it is they're incredibly valuable because they not only do they notify you that there's a fire, but they also actually immediately attack the fire. And they use so much less water than fire to do. Our, our typical hose line has about 150 gallons a minute coming out of it, where a sprinkler, sprinkler head has about 12 gallons a minute. So the amount of people often worry about water damage, but the water damage is incredibly low, even if a sprinkler system does activate and uh, starts attacking the fire. And in most cases, the sprinkler head, only one or two sprinkler heads would actually activate in a typical home fire. And it helps to keep the fire contained and it gives you a massive amount of time to escape and can, it also notifies the fire department so that we can immediately respond. Are
0: sprinklers in new construction cost prohibitive? Is that one of the, the concerns that, that people have?
1: It's One of the biggest arguments that we often hear, but in reality, uh, they really are not. And the cost has come way down, especially in new construction, because as you're building, it's much easier to install them. And um, what we often compare it to is upgrading countertops or upgrading cabinets. It's about the same cost. So the key is, is would you rather have granite countertops or have your family more likely 90% safer because of, in case of a home fire? And that's one of the things. Most people just don't think about fire as an issue. And it's just not mentioned very oftentimes in the process of building a home. But it really should be. God forbid if there
0: is a fire and you are, are trapped in a burning building and waiting to be rescued,
1: mm-hmm. are there ways you can increase your
0: chances of survival?
1: Well, like I said, we talked about escape planning earlier, and that's the the biggest single thing is as soon as you know or you hear the smoke detector or anything, getting people out of the building. But there are some times when you cannot exit the building safely. And what we tell people is stay in the room, close the door and go to the window, open that window, stay right by the window. You, make, you can always use 911 and notify the people, that, notify the fire department as they arrive. The key with that is um, as fire officers, when we pull up in front of a building, we wanna know if there are people that are not accounted for. We wanna know where they, where they should be. So if there are people outside in a meeting place, they can tell us that, or if someone is on, on the phone with the 911 dispatcher, they could describe where they are. I'm on the second floor in the front of the building or that kind of thing. So the firefighters, when they arrive, can immediately get to that location first and evacuate those people. With fires
0: and and injuries resulting from them, do you see more people suffering from
1: smoke inhalation or from burns? Very oftentimes, smoke inhalation is the major cause of fire deaths in the U.S. um, because it affects you much quicker than the flames actually do. In many cases, people die from fires by smoke inhalation only, and they're never actually burned in the building either in either case um, it's it's p- the hazards of a home fire and the key is immediate escape is our best option when it comes to
0: the professionals volunteers and paid firefighters mm-hmm. fighting blazes has the technology changed a lot over the years I remember maybe 20 years ago when you had these cameras that could detect heat. Mm-hmm. Thermal Those imaging?
1: Are, yeah, thermal imaging. They're pretty much yeah. standard equipment in almost every fire department. They were, like you said, if several many years ago, they were brand new technology. They were expensive. They were bulky. They were difficult to man- maneuver around inside the building with them. They've become very, very simple now and very small. And there's even some places that are advocating that each firefighting helmet be attached with some degree of that. Um, it's, it's a long way off yet, but still, the thermal, thermal imaging gives the firefighter the ability. It, it's not really seeing through smoke because it's simply detecting changes in temperature, but it's still in a smoke-filled room. You can identify furniture. You can identify victims. You can identify the layout of the room. So it all leads to quicker searches and a quicker ability to get um, victims of fire out of the building.
0: Connecticut has a number of
1: volunteer firefighters, especially in, in smaller communities. About and 70%. They're,
0: they're all looking for volunteers.
1: Yeah. They, right now, and this is not just unique to Connecticut, it's everywhere in the in the country, volunteer fire departments are becoming very, very difficult to keep open because there's just not enough staff. And they really need to have a continuous recruitment effort to keep people interested and coming back. Oftentimes people do not realize that, you know, the fire department is is compro- comprised of volunteer firefighters. So they want to, you know, they might not even consider it. But uh, in Connecticut, we've created um, 1-800-FIRELINE, which is an informational um, a, a technique that people can use this phone number to call to generate information about becoming a volunteer in your community. And it's it's a critical key because – the volunteer shortage is becoming very important throughout the state and throughout the country. What level of training is involved for that? It really depends on each fire department. They have different rules depending, and that's something that you would determine once you, if, once you determined that you were interested in that thing. But typically, most of the uh, the basic firefighting classes, we offer them throughout the state. It's part of what the Connecticut Fire Academy provides as well as regional fire schools. And um, most of the time people are getting trained while they're still members. And in some cases they're still responding to calls even as they're becoming trained and as they learn more and more skills, they can actually perform more skills on the fire ground. So it's not like you're sitting there waiting forever and ever to before you can actually start contributing to the, to the community. But um, most of, uh, most basic firefighting courses take about I think it's around 160 to 180 hours for the typical firefighter one class. And it's typically they offer them on weekends and on week week nights so that we try to make them as convenient as possible for people who work. He is Alan Zygmunt, public
0: fire and life safety coordinator with the Department of Emergency Services and Public Protection in the Connecticut Fire Academy. Thanks so much for joining us this morning. Thank you very much for having us, and stay fire safe. Thanks for listening to Face Connecticut. I'm Aaron Kupek. Enjoy the balance of your weekend. Face Connecticut is a production of the News and Public Affairs Department of WTIC Radio.